The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you in these moments where we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, summer is over, but of course it's not because it's still hot outside, but not nearly as hot as it's been. Do you know the high on Tuesday is only 90 degrees? I may wear a jacket. But as of August 17th, we'd hit 100 degrees 66 times this year, the fourth most so far ever. In 2011, you know how many days we hit? 90 days of 100 degree heat, but this summer's been the hottest summer on record because five degrees above average and one degree higher than on in average than 2011. So I wonder, did it make you want to leave Austin? Some of you just moved here for, to Austin. And for those of you who just moved here, you need to know about the El Arroyo restaurant marquee. It's kind of famous. And here are the three best weather related signs of the summer. In my opinion, number one in Texas, shade is just diet sun. Number two, this can't be the same heat Whitney Houston wanted to feel with somebody. It's for all of us who are listening to music in 1987. And especially for you who just moved here, remember to stay indoors and drink lots of water between 11 a.m. and November 2nd. <laughs> Speaking of leaving, a recent cover of Christianity Today caught my attention because the man on the cover looked like me, especially on Sunday. Black robe, tie, stole. And at the bottom of this image around his feet was a pool of what looked like water, but it was very dark, almost oil-like. And the title of the article was Emptied Out. Tens of thousands of pastors want to quit but haven't. What has happened to them? And that title helped me understand what the image was portraying, which was a pastor being drained from the top to the bottom of his desire to stay in the church as a pastor. And many pastors are leaving. I won't bore you with the statistics, but bottom line, there's a growing decline in the number of pastors as well as the number of men and women who are going to seminary. And so there's a a coming pastor shortage that's on the horizon. But what I kept reading 
were thinking as I was reading that article is what about you? What about congregants? If that is happening to pastors, then are congregants, my congregants, being drained of their desire to remain in the church also? It's no secret that 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians, which may sound like a lot to us, especially who, those of us who live here in Austin, but just a decade ago, it was 75%, which do the math, I'm not great at math, but that's around 30, 35 million fewer people. And so the point is, it's not just pastors who are being drained of their desire to stay in the church as pastors, but many people like you are being drained of their desire to stay in the church as Christians. And that's one of the reasons we're going to look at the New Testament letter of 1 John this fall, because John is writing to a church who's seen a number of its members leave, and those who have left are trying to persuade those who are still in the church to leave also. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first four verses. They introduce the letter, and they give us a sense of what John has to say to us, to, to people like us under pressure to leave. And so three points this morning, really three words, life, fellowship, and joy. First of all, life. John begins this letter in the very same way that he begins his gospel with an emphasis on life, as though he's subtly impressing upon his readers from both his gospel and his epistle here, this question, and that is, are you truly living? As you read my words and you look at your life, the life of those around you, is it true life? Is it flourishing? And again, it's not just John who's asking that, who's saying that. Again, many Christians have left this church and they're asking that question of those who are still there. Are you really living? But they're saying that you're not. You're not living. And the reason that you're not living is because of the Christian faith. You need to leave with us. And some of you know what that is like. You know it very specifically. You've had someone close to you leave the faith. Maybe your spouse, a number of folks who worship here with us, their, their spouse has left the faith, no longer a Christian, or maybe a close friend. A lot of us have experienced that. I've experienced that. Or maybe a child. And so for you, whether or not those people who have left are trying to persuade you to leave also, this, is, this sounds very familiar to you. It's very personal. But others of you, that's not the case. You haven't had someone close to you leave the faith. You don't have anyone specifically trying to persuade you to leave. But on a broad macro level, I want you to understand that's happening to us all. Because every TV ad, every TV show, every podcast that someone sends to you that has a social imaginary I'll get back, back to that in a second. Has a social imaginary contrary to that of the Christian faith is saying to you, your faith is not the answer to life. Your faith is the problem. So do you know that word social imaginary? Have you heard that before? Some of you maybe. It's kind of a new term. It's much like worldview, but better, I think, because it emphasizes more than just cognition and thinking. It em emphasizes imagination. It's also less individualistic. A philosopher named Charles Taylor coined the term, and by it he means the way that people as communities, not just individuals, but as communities, imagine how they fit together and relate to one another based on common assumed beliefs and the images that reinforce those beliefs. And so again, behind every song that you listen to, every TV show that you see, every TV ad, every political ad, every podcast, every lesson in school, behind every cultural endeavor lies a social imaginary. For example, Carl Truman, who's a professor and a historian, he's recently written what I consider a very important book. Much of it relies upon Charles Taylor's work. Its title is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
Many of you heard of this book? A few of you have mentioned it to me, I know, a couple of y'all. This is how it begins the book. The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather, he writes, died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have considered it incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard not only as meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to an irrational phobia. And he's right. But what happened? What happened was our social imaginary changed dramatically. And there's a constant reinforcement of that new imaginary from almost every angle or every avenue of our culture. And it's not overt necessarily, nor direct, but it's still there putting us in a very similar position as these Christians that John is writing to, which is people feeling a pressure to leave. So I wondered, do you feel that pressure? How do you feel that pressure? From whom, from what do you feel it? Notice how John begins his letter here when he says that in verse one, that which was from the beginning. It sounds very similar to the beginning of his gospel. It's similar, but different. Beginning of his gospel, when when he mentions the beginning, He's talking about Jesus's life before he was born into this world. So Jesus's life as God, with God, as God, the son, with God, the father, always here, when he mentions the beginning, he's talking about the beginning of Jesus's earthly life. And he's saying, I was one of them that heard him with my own ears. I was one who saw him with my own eyes. I touched him with my own hands. There was a objective physicality to this and not just me, but others. Thomas included. You remember Thomas? We read about him this morning. What do we call Thomas? What's his nickname? It's not fair. It's not fair at all. All the disciples doubted Jesus's resurrection before they saw him and heard him and touched him. But they all had this experience. John included. What John is saying is that God did something objective, historical, physical in the world. It wasn't just something spiritual that we felt. It wasn't just something that we dreamed up and projected out onto others and to the world. It wasn't something that we did at all. It was something that God did. And it was life. It was life, otherworldly life, divine life, eternal, unending, inextinguishable life. And its presence was flourishing and meaning and purpose and delight and peace and wonder beyond description. And it burst onto the scene of our lives in the person of Jesus. And he wants them, he wants us to be persuaded by his experience and by his testimony to believe what he saw and he heard and he touched because we didn't. We didn't see it. We didn't hear it. We didn't touch it. And it's a hard ask. It was a hard ask for these people just a a decade or a couple of decades after Jesus's life on earth. What about for us? 2,000 years after it. It's a hard thing to do, but yet to be a Christian, you have to believe what they saw and they heard and they touched. My friends, I want you to understand that at the end of the day, we're always listening to others. We're always relying upon and being persuaded by other people's experience and testimony. If we're Buddhists or atheists, socialists or Republicans, hedonists, capitalists, whether we believe in UFOs or Bigfoot, We are relying upon someone else's experience and testimony. They say experience it, they believe, and then we come along and decide to believe with them. 
with them. You believe what you believe with someone. So who is it? Do you you even know who it is that you're believing with? That's why John goes on to mention fellowship, which is our second word here. Right after he talks about his experience in verses one and two, in verse three, two different times he mentions fellowship because we never believe in a vacuum. We never believe on our own. The answers, the biggest questions, the answers, the biggest questions of life about life and about what it means to be human and meaning and purpose and what's true, it's always, number one, based upon somebody else's experience and testimony, and then it always brings us into a fellowship of belief that rivals other fellowships. It's always the case for anyone. So if you aren't a Christian this morning, you have a fellowship of belief, even if you don't realize it. You're believing with a group. Who is that group? And if you are a Christian, and most of us here are, you have rival fellowships that vie for your allegiance. And you may not realize it, but they do. For example, hard-nosed, win-it-all capitalism that makes money the ultimate end and the only aim of work. That can be a rival fellowship that whispers to you, you are your job. Your job, your wealth, your success, the elite life that that ushers you into, that is life. That is who you are. That's your identity. You are a rich man. You are a rich woman. Or even the LGBTQ community, very similar. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that gay men and women can't be Christians. They can. I'm also not saying that LGBTQ folks aren't welcome here. They very much are. And I'm not saying that someone who has these desires and wants to resist them can't be a member here at our church. They can. What I am saying is that the LGBTQ movement functions very much like a religion. Very much. It has its own answers to the big questions of the origin of life, the goal of life, the foundation of identity. And it it revolves and centers around sexuality. They have conversion experiences. They're, They're as creedal in their beliefs as we are. They have conversion testimonies. They have a religious further. They're evangelistic. They want others to come into their community. It's one of the reasons they're growing right now. So my point is that the historic Christian faith and the LGBTQ faith each have non-negotiables that will conflict with one another at some point. And those who try to live in both communities at some point will be pressured to make a choice of which community is going to be primary for them. And it's not just the pressure coming from us on this side of things. It's them as well. Political parties do the same thing. They demand total allegiance all too often. Why do you think so many politically liberal Christians dismiss the Bible and the teaching of the church on abortion while so many politically conservative Christians do the same thing, many with racism, with poverty? It's not just those big things of life. It's also the small things of life, like your kid's sports team. Make no mistake, they're little fellowships. And they say, this is what matters. This is the foundation of your identity. This is who you are. This is your family. Your, your, your sports team. These are the rituals that we do together in practice. This is the, the sacrament of sport that will give you life. This is the recognition and reward that you're looking for. Well done, thy good and faithful athlete. This is it. Because it's all religious. It is all religious. Money, sex, politics, and sport, they are the great religions of modern America. And they're rival fellowships of faith. And make no mistake, they will pressure you to choose. One of my favorite illustrations is of Flannery O'Connor, and I've told it multiple times here. Some of you could probably tell it as well. It's when she was invited to New York City for a dinner party with some famous elite literary folks. And at dinner, there was conversation, but afterward, the host began to kind of poke fun at the Eucharist, saying something like she thought it was 
a nice symbol for and meaningful for some people. She had left the Christian faith, left it a number of years before. It was obviously aimed at Flannery and a subtle pressure to make her choose between their fellowship and the Christian faith. And famously, she said, well, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. And then she stood up and she walked out. The point is, is that each of us will have a Flannery moment. You will have a Flannery moment where you have to choose and you have to decide which fellowship of belief you're going to walk out on and which fellowship you're going to walk out for. So what's the rival fellowship of belief that's pressuring you right now? And how do you decide? How do you decide who to believe with? I once heard a pastor say that one of the reasons I believe in the resurrection is that my mother told me. And to this day, a strong element in my belief is the number and the quality of the people who told me. Did you hear that? The number and the quality of the people who told me. It's a massive part of what John is doing in this book. He's, he's not just putting up arguments against other people's arguments. He's putting his life and the life of his fellowship up against the life and the fellowship of those others. And he's saying, judge for yourself. Look at our life. Look, look at what it's produced. Look at our relationships. Look at our stability and our peace. And judge for yourself if you think that we actually heard, saw, and touched divine life in Jesus. Look at us and decide for yourselves what you think. If you think divine life touched our fellowship. Judge our claims based upon that. Do you do that with anyone or any other community besides the church? Do you look at any other fellowships and judge what they say based upon their life? Because John's inviting you to do so. It's a bold invitation. He's also emphasizing joy. It's our third and final word here. And John tells us directly why he's writing in verse four at the very end of our passage. He says, we're writing these things to you. We, the the disciples, the apostles, we're writing these things to you that our joy may be made complete. And that sounds kind of odd. We're writing that our joy may be made complete. Not your joy, but our joy. Later manuscripts, transcribers thought it sounded strange, so they changed it to to your joy because it made John sound more pious and more altruistic. That's not what he says. He says, I'm writing these things to you for our, for my joy. And it tells us a lot about John and about his relationship with these Christians. It tells us that he truly loves them. So much so that without them in the fellowship, he's saying his joy is not complete. His joy is not what it should be without them because he loves them that much. It completes in some ways his joy. He's not the only one that speaks like this. Apostle Paul speaks like this. Philippians chapter two and elsewhere. So too to C.S. Lewis. He says something very similar, but about praise. He says, men spontaneously praise whatever they value. So they spontaneously urge us also to join them in praising. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. I think the same is true about joy. It's not complete for the Christian until others whom you love enter into it and experience it with you. Because there's a very real connection, a very real, mysterious, spiritual connection between Christians. So much so that Christian joy, it's not a private experience. It's something that each individual person enters into and taps into together. One author I read describes joy as subterranean. And his illustration is that his family used to live on the side of a hill. 
And even when it was very dry, like it is here in Austin, has been this summer, his grass and the trees and shrubs, they were all still green. He didn't understand why. And then the first rain happened. And what happened to his basement? Flooded because his house was on top of a subterranean river. And so when it rained down, the waters also came up. And that is joy for the Christian. That even when the circumstances of your life give you no reason for joy, when there's nothing raining down upon you, no rain of of blessing from above, no good fortune, no good things, no happy things happening, but just the opposite. It's all pain or loss or disappointment or sadness for you. Still, you don't dry up. You, You don't dry up. You're not crushed emotionally. You don't lash out at others and damage others. You don't become irritable or needy or victimized. You don't lose your peace, at least not all of it, or, or all of your courage or contentment or thankfulness and your delighting. You're still able to find delight and joy in things somehow. Somehow you're upheld. So you know what that's like? You know that experience? It's Psalm 1 like the tree that is planted with deep roots into subterranean spiritual waters that give you joy, a joy that the world doesn't know. It's Jeremiah 17. Again, a tree planted with deep roots sent out into subterranean waters that the prophet Jeremiah says is God, that he is the fountain of living waters. You can know joy. It doesn't mean you're always happy. It just means that you're drawing life from something other than yourself and something other than your circumstances. And some of you aren't. Some of you aren't, it's killing you. It's killing you spiritually. It's killing you emotionally. It's killing you relationally. And you need to know that Christian joy can and does coexist with terrible experiences. This is true of Jesus's life. He wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him. In the garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he wept. He was so overcome that he sweated so much. It was like blood pouring out of a wound. So profoundly overcome as he faced the reality of the cross. So why did he face it? Why did he go ahead, willingly go to the cross? Do you know? Do you know what Hebrews 12 says? Do you remember? It says, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross and endured it. Because he wasn't just rooted in himself or his circumstances. He was rooted in his very life as God. He was infinitely, deeply rooted into his fellowship with God the Father, and it gave him joy. It gave him joy, despite experiencing the very worst that the world can do. It gave him joy even going to death, which is our death, the consequence of our sin. And so just think about that. The very life that John speaks of, Jesus, the very life of the world was cast into death. The life of the world was cast into death for you, for me, for us, in order that we might not only be forgiven, yes, but that we might be drawn in to that fellowship, which is the reason for our desires for any other fellowship. That is the fellowship. If you're a Christian, you already have it. Because he was cast out that you might come in, be deeply rooted in his joy and his life and stay. Stay. So will you stay? If you will, you're going to need to sink the roots of your life deeply into our church fellowship. And if not ours, then some other church fellowship. Because John here distinguishes between the church fellowship of Christians and the fellowship of the Father and the Son. He distinguishes between the two of them. He doesn't divorce the two because they're inextricably connected for him. And so too must they be for you. 
So what Christian fellowship are you sinking the roots of your life into that you might further sink the roots of your soul into God? First step is being here in worship. Congratulations, you're here. Come back. Come back. As the fall gets busy, don't make this ancillary or secondary in your schedule. Make it primary and be here and participate in and by faith and and sink the roots of your soul more deeply into our faith and into God. But don't just come to worship. Connect and engage personally with, with other Christians here and be known. We have so many smaller groups that are beginning right now various formation groups that are starting right now. Women's Wednesday studies beginning this Wednesday. Men's Wednesday study. There's so many formation groups for young adults, for youth. There's a youth large group, 50 plus. There's our new Unidos ministry. There's so very much. That's why we're having this, this, this giant tent out here. It's not a, a snake handling tent revival, but that would be cool. It's not that. It's there to help you connect and to know and to be known that you might more fully and complete, confidently, joyfully believe with us. So believe with us because God shares his life through the fellowship of the church and the result is joy. So sink the roots of your soul deeply, deeply in. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit. We pray that so often. We pray it every week. We pray that it would be true. This day, as all days that we gather for worship, May you sink the roots of our soul deeply into your very life, into the very life, death, resurrection of your son, that we may be raised. Even now, it's a new life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.